Catholic History Trek, a podcast exploring the Catholic past. A desperate disease requires a dangerous remedy. If you've seen any videos or pictures of a protest or riot over the past decade or two, it's likely you've spotted protesters donning a white face masked. The mask features red cheeks, a white mustache upturned at both ends, and a thin vertical beard on the chin. The quote mentioned at the top of this episode is attributed to Guy Fawkes, and the white mask I just described is the Guy Fawkes mask, branded after the namesake of the British holiday commonly referred to as Guy Fawkes Day. In England, when this holiday was first established, it was commonplace for the Protestant English to burn effigies of their most hated figures, namely the Pope, other Catholic churchmen, the devil, and Guy Fawkes. The Guy Fawkes effigies were made to look somewhat grotesque, and over time, Guy came to mean a grotesque or shabbily dressed male. And from this derogatory term Guy came the informal usage of Guy used today to describe a male, as in, hey you guys, the saying made famous by the electric company and later by Sloth from Goonies. In the centerpiece of these Guy Fawkes effigies were the characteristic mask. By the early 1900s, one could spot children with cheaply made paper or cardboard versions of this uniquely British mask. But over the past few decades, this mask has garnered global appeal due to the V for Vendetta series, in which the protagonist wore a Guy Fawkes mask. The series first appeared as a British graphic novel, which ran from 1982 to 1989, before being later released to the U.S. market by DC Comics, and was also turned into a 2005 film adaptation of the same name. In the popular series, the protagonist takes a vigilante stand against the totalitarian British state, who suppresses history and traditional institutions. The suppressive government works with the media to steal freedom away from unsuspecting sheeple by imposing lockdowns and curfews and performing experimental treatments on the citizens in response to an overhyped viral infection. Maybe that sounds strangely familiar. Regardless, the mask has made global appearances in places such as pro-democracy demonstrations and leftist protests against capitalism over the past decade or two. But who is the real Guy Fawkes? And why did Protestant England set up a holiday to celebrate how much they hated him? In this episode of Catholic History Trek, I'll be joined by my illustrious co-host Kevin Schmeezing as we trek into the surprising Catholic history of Guy Fawkes Day. Before we discover Guy Fawkes, I'd like to take a quick moment to share the news about our Catholic History Trek channel available on YouTube. If you like listening to content on YouTube, it's another way to check out some fascinating history on the Catholic Church. Our YouTube content features our podcast audio with the addition of pictures. So, you can see a blighted potato and the Fair Catch Corby statue in our episode on Civil War Chaplain Father Corby, and you can see some of the historic churches from West Central Ohio in our episode on the land of the cross-tip churches. We now have 10 of our 23 published episodes uploaded to YouTube, with more on the way. So feel free to give it a thumbs up and subscribe if you like what you find. And while you're there, be sure to check out the episode on the miraculous image of Our Lady of Las Lajas, which is miraculously outperforming the other episodes. Back to Guy Fawkes. One of the disputes that Kevin and I covered in our Popes vs. Kings podcast was that of Pope Pius V and Queen Elizabeth of England, 
in the late 16th century, following King Henry VIII's break from Rome, he created the Church of England as sort of an anti-church to replace the Catholic Church with one that would bend to the king's will. His son, Edward VI, and then Lady Jane Grey both succeeded Henry, continuing his anti-Catholic policies. Although their tenures only lasted a combined six years before a glimmer of hope for the restoration of Catholicism in England was heralded, with Mary I ascending to the throne, who returned England to its Catholic roots. Unfortunately for English Catholics, any such restoration was to only last five years since the Queen died without a successor. Elizabeth I replaced her deceased half-sister Mary I as the new ruler of England, plunging the country back into Protestantism. Elizabeth renewed Henry VIII's attacks on the Catholic Church, including outlawing the Mass and the Sacraments, requiring attendance at Anglican services, and imposing fines and imprisonment on those who remain Catholic. As covered in that previous podcast, Elizabeth's policies led to Pope Pius V's excommunication of her in his 1570 papal bull, Regnans in Excelsis, to which she responded by intensifying her attacks on Catholics in England and creating many martyrs from among the Catholic recusants, who were underground Catholics that secretly remained faithful to God over the monarchy and sheltered priests who were hunted by the English crown. This papal bull aligned with a failed rebellion by Catholic English earls Thomas Percy and Charles Neville, who attempted to overthrow Elizabeth and replace her with a Catholic monarch, Mary Queen of Scots, in order to restore the faith to their country and end the persecution of Catholicism. But while the rebellion was defeated in 1570, it did show there was sentiment among some recusant Catholics desiring to overthrow the Queen's reign of terror by political and military means. It was into this environment which Robert Catsby, the unlikely originator of the gunpowder plot, was born. With Queen Elizabeth's strong-handed promotion and enforcement of Protestantism in England, Catsby comfortably fell in the line. He had more of a disposition towards parties and overspending than rebelling against the government. He even married a Protestant and had his son baptized as one. But upon his father's death in 1598, he became a changed man and became an ardent Catholic. He also became inclined towards political and violent means to gain rights for the persecuted faith, and even joined the failed Essex Rebellion against Queen Elizabeth in 1601, in part because the Earl of Essex was promising toleration towards Catholics if successful. Queen Elizabeth had not established a clear successor to the throne, and Pope Clement VII had exhorted Catholics to work for a Catholic successor. And so, in the early 1600s, that is what men like Catsby and his associates had sought to do. Thomas Winter had entered fruitless negotiations in Spain for assistance in placing a Catholic to the throne, while Thomas Percy was in Edinburgh receiving promises of favor for Catholics from King James of Scotland should James succeed Elizabeth. In 1603, James, King of Scotland, did become James I, King of England, but any promises of toleration for Catholics he previously offered proved to be empty. Within a year of James ascending to become the King of England and realizing that this new king had no intentions of following through on his promises of relief from the persecutions levied against Catholics, Robert Catsby determined that extreme measures were required, and thus the gunpowder plot was devised to essentially blow up Parliament and rid England of King James. 
a group of five original conspirators joined an oath of secrecy to this venture. Catsby, Thomas Percy, who some believe to actually be the plot's originator, Thomas Winter, John Wright, and the aforementioned Guy Fawkes. Fawkes, the most well-known name of the group today, was born in 1570 in York to a noble family and raised in the Church of England. Although his mother's side of the family were recusant Catholics, and one of his cousins was even a Jesuit priest. At some point, Guy Fawkes converted to Catholicism, possibly as a teenager after his widowed mother remarried and married a Catholic. By his early 20s, he sold his estate he inherited from his father and left England to enlist in the Catholic Spanish army and fight in the Eighty Years' War against the Dutch Republic and its Protestant allies. He also later adopted the Italian name Guido, after having failed in attracting Spanish aid to the calls of taking the English throne, he later joined Catsby's group, bringing his military experience. And having been away from England for many years, he provided a lack of public recognition, which was a useful asset for such a clandestine adventure. In May of 1604, they rented a property close to Parliament for the purpose of digging a mine from the rented building to Parliament so they could plant explosive gunpowder under the House of Lords and blow the thing up. Their mining was delayed for six months before they could begin, although once they got underway, they made good progress towards the House of Lords, but by March of 1605, they learned instead of digging, they could just rent a cellar in the House of Lords. So they abandoned the mining operation and rented the cellar. Surprisingly, they made easy work of sneaking in the gunpowder and bundles of firewood which were used to conceal it. In order to procure more money for the endeavor, they admitted more men to their oath of secrecy. Five more were added, and later an additional three were included, bringing the total to 13. It's believed, although unconfirmed, that this 13th man, Francis Tresham, unintentionally caused the plot to be discovered by sending his Catholic cousin, Lord Monteagle, a letter in October warning him to avoid Parliament on a particular day. Lord Monteagle brought the letter to the attention of the government, although no additional security measures were seemingly taken. So the conspirators considered it a narrow escape and continued with their plans to blow up Parliament on November 5th. But the night before the planned explosion was set to take place, a series of inspections of Parliament were commenced presumably in response to the letter that Lord Montego had received. And on the second search, a massive collection consisting of 36 barrels of gunpowder was discovered. Guy Fawkes, who was on watch close by and tasked with igniting the powder, as the former military man with experience in such matters was arrested. Fawkes offered an alias of John Johnson and claimed to be working alone. When asked why he had such a large collection of gunpowder, He's said to have replied, to blow you Scotch beggars back to your native mountains, presumably in a reference to King James' Scottish origins. When he was initially tortured in an attempt to discover his accomplices, he resisted, to the surprise and admiration of his captors. King James then ordered Fox to be sent to the Tower of London and suffer increasing torture until he talked. After a couple days of intense torture, an enfeebled Fox finally produced the names of his associates. Meanwhile, the remaining members of the conspiracy fled towards Wales, but upon reaching Worcestershire, they realized further retreat was unlikely. They found a priest, made their last confessions, and then prepared for their upcoming fate. 
On the morning of November 8th, they fought off a large number of attackers, resulting in four of their company killed while the survivors were arrested. Their trials were held on January 27th, and on the 31st of January 1606, they were executed by being hanged and quartered. Fawkes, either from the effects of illness or torture, struggled to stand on the gallows and fell to the ground, dying of a broken neck. Already dead from this fall, the executioners proceeded to hang and quarter him anyway. But this is not the end of our trek. Rather, Guy Fawkes and the gunpowder plot had far-reaching effects. And I don't just mean the 1841 steel engraving by George Krukashank titled Guy Fawkes Laying the Train, which sadly has little to do with actual trains. But there were consequences of the failed gunpowder plot, which reached beyond the 13 men set on blowing up Parliament and freeing themselves from Catholic persecution. And for this, Kevin has some great information to fill us in on the rest of the story. That's right, Scott. The drama of the gunpowder plot, as much drama as there was in the initial incident, did not end with the foiling of the plot in late 1605. Instead, there was a long aftermath. Almost immediately, there was what the old Catholic encyclopedia calls the attempt to incriminate the church meaning that the investigation sought to show that there was some organized official involvement by the Catholic Church in this plot. So to this end, it was announced in January 1606 that the Jesuit priests, Henry Garnett, John Gerard, and Oswald Tesimond, who was known in England by his undercover name, Father Greenway, were conspirators in the plot. Now, there were, in fact, connections between the perpetrators and the Jesuits, but that doesn't mean that the latter, the Jesuits, were guilty. Catsby had consulted Garnett with questions about the morality of violence under certain conditions, and this eventually aroused Garnett's suspicion, and he reminded Catsby that the Pope had warned against any attempt at revolution by Catholics in England. Prior to the execution of the plot, Catsby unburdened his conscience to Father Tesimond in confession, giving him permission to discuss the matter with Garnett alone. Tesimond urged Catsby to stop the plot, but could do nothing further due to the seal of confession. So Garnett and Tesimond both had some advanced knowledge of the plot, but far from participating in it, they'd done what they could to prevent it. Moreover, the two Jesuits were led to believe that their efforts had been successful and that Catsby would not go through with the operation. They were stunned to discover otherwise, on November 4th, or shortly thereafter. Eleven days after the warrant for Garnett's arrest was issued, he was discovered in a priest hole, along with another Jesuit, Edward Oldcorn. In prison, though pressure did not cause him to initially divulge anything about his role, Garnett was spied on, his private conversations were overheard, and his role, as I've described it, was learned of. Even though this should have exonerated him, the English legal system didn't have much respect for the seal of confession, and English public opinion had no sympathy for the moral scruples of a Jesuit priest. So Father Garnett was convicted of treason, sentenced to death, and executed on May 3, 1606. In his autobiography, Father Gerard recalls, As soon as news reached us that a plot had been discovered and that some of our friends had been killed and others captured, we knew that we would have to suffer. Tesimond and Gerard went into hiding, 
they managed to escape England and were never captured. You can read an account of this incident as well as many other fascinating stories of the work of the Jesuits in England during this period in Gerard's Autobiography of a Hunted Priest, which is still in print from Ignatius Press. The final chapter is titled The Powder Plot. Now that chapter of his autobiography is a summary of the gunpowder plot and Gerard's involvement in it, but Gerard also wrote a 600-page account that you can read in full at the Internet Archive, if you're so inclined. Gerard's escape was no simple matter, as he describes in the autobiography. In fact, a pivotal moment came when he was about to embark for France and was nearly refused passage. He found out later that it was the very time that his friend Father Garnett was dying, May 3rd, 1606. In Gerard's words, I did escape, and in my own mind I have no doubt that I owed it to Father Garnett's prayers. The reality of the treasonous actions of Catholics, the conviction of Garnett, and the suspicion that other Jesuits, and therefore maybe even co-conspirators in Rome, perhaps the Pope himself, were involved, provided fuel for the fires of English animus toward Catholicism. New restrictions were placed on Catholics, including an oath of allegiance, fines, and prohibitions on certain offices and professions. Even so, King James I personally exhibited some toleration toward Catholics. For example, George Calvert, the first Lord Baltimore and a Catholic convert, rose to nobility and prominence during James's reign. Calvert's son would plant the colony of Maryland. Nonetheless, the plot and the way it was understood and remembered in popular culture caused anti-Catholicism, already a strong force, to become deeply embedded in English culture. November 5th was thereafter celebrated as a holiday in England and elsewhere in the British Empire. It started off as Gunpowder Treason Day, a day of thanksgiving for the attempt on the king's life being foiled. Soon became Guy Fawkes Day, a time to release anti-Catholic hostility. That brings us back to my estimable co-host Scott's introduction. Effigies of Guy Fawkes and the Pope would be burned. Often mobs would engage in violence and acts of arson. It was sort of an extreme form of mischief night for Americans who are familiar with that observance, which usually occurs the night before Halloween. In the American colonies, there was also a Guy Fawkes Day. It was known as Pope Day, though its observance gradually declined in the late 18th century. In fact, during the American Revolution, General George Washington forbade his soldiers from participating in what he called that ridiculous and childish custom of burning the effigy of the Pope. In the 1850s, in line with a general relenting of anti-Catholicism in British law and culture, Guy Fawkes Day was tamed. The anti-Catholic element faded, and the bonfires and violence were curbed. Today, it's basically a vaguely patriotic day for some fireworks, kind of like the American Fourth of July. Even so, James Sharp, a British historian who's written about the history of the holiday, says that he remembers learning the day's song as a child in the 1950s. Remember, remember the 5th of November, gunpowder, treason, and plot. I see no reason why gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. Indeed, the origins of Guy Fawkes Day 400 years ago, the momentous gunpowder plot, was serious business at the time with serious repercussions in the history of Catholicism. Thanks for joining us on this intriguing trek into the history of Guy Fawkes Day. Please join us in closing with our prayer. Gloria Patri et Filio et Spiritui Sancto. 
Sicut in principio et nunc et semper, et in saecula saeculorum. Amen. Thank you for listening to Catholic History Trek. You can reach us at catholichistorytrek at gmail.com.